are listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry, please visit EnduringWord.com. Hey everybody, David Guzik here. So glad that you could join me for another uh, YouTube Live question and answer session. I'm here uh, in my home in Santa Barbara. Last week, I was actually broadcasting or live casting, whatever you want to call it, from my daughter's flat in England. Uh, but here I'm back home in Santa Barbara. I haven't gotten home yesterday, and I'm happy to be here for another Thursday afternoon. Now, before I go into our lead question and then take whatever questions or comments, respond to them, to them the best I can, uh, I need to tell you something about next Thursday. Next Thursday, I will not be live Next Thursday, and I think we're going to repeat this again at the end of our time together. Next Thursday, I'm going to be in Cuba. I'm very excited to be able to go to a pastor's conference and pastor's gathering in Cuba, where there's going to be a number of pastors and their wives, and I'm going to be a part of a team of pastors, mostly from the U.S., but also some from Europe and I think Latin America, who are going to come and minister to this uh, group of pastors in uh, Cuba. I appreciate your prayers for that. So I'll be there the first week of February here in 2020, and uh, I will not be able to do, I can say with great confidence that I won't have the uh, internet quality or connection that would allow me to do the show live from uh, uh, live from Cuba next week. But anyway, we're here together here on this week, and let me begin with our lead question for this week. The lead question is simply this, uh, can we tempt God? Or, or another way to uh, phrase it is, can we really tempt God? And it comes from a question from Neely. Uh, Neely says, hi, pastor. I sure miss tuning in live on Thursdays. I switch professions, so I'm no longer able to watch live. Regardless, I do have a two-part question and look forward to your answer. Here's the question that Neely brings. Uh, she asks, what does it mean to tempt God and what does it look like? Okay, let me repeat that again. Neely's question is this. What does it mean to tempt God and what does it look like? Well, that's a great question, Neely. I'm glad that you asked it. If I could just get at it and sort of, we'll start wading into it from the get-go here. What does it mean to tempt God? Well, we begin with this, that, you know, the original languages of the Bible, Hebrew, Greek, actually there's a little bit of Aramaic in the Old Testament, but for the most part, Hebrew and Greek, in both of those languages, the same word has the sense of test and what we normally think of as tempt. Let me put it this way. They use the same word to describe what we would a test and what we would call a enticement to evil. Now, most of the time when we use the word in English, tempt, a temptation, I was tempted to this. Usually what we mean is something that is an enticement to evil. There's something trying to draw me into doing something evil that I shouldn't do. Uh, the Hebrew word and the Greek word that's commonly translated temptation or whatever, tempted in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, really has a much more neutral meaning that can either be translated test or enticed to evil. Now, we need to make this clear. God 
cannot be enticed to evil. What do I mean by that? Well, James chapter 1, verse 13 says this. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So in that sense, God cannot be enticed by evil. There's nothing within God that is drawn to evil in any way. And of course, we're speaking of God in heaven. When God added humanity to his deity, and came down among us in the person of Jesus Christ, then Jesus could be tempted and was tempted. But but in the nature of the divine and the divine alone, there's nothing there to entice to evil. So God cannot be enticed to evil, but God can be tested. And mankind can test God in an evil way, but, but it's also true that there are ways that we can test God in a way that honors him. What do I mean by that? Check this out. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. Some of you are familiar with this because it's a passage that speaks about tithing, giving. But Malachi 3.10 says this, Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house, and try me now in this. That's the idea. Prove me. Test me. Try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessing that there will not be enough room to receive it. Now, in Malachi's day, this was the issue. God said, hey, Israel, you're not giving unto me as I have commanded, as I have proposed. And of course, this is commonly a failing of believers. Many believers don't give unto the Lord and unto God's work as they should. But anyway, that's back in the days of Malachi. Malachi chapter 3, he's dealing with this issue. And what God specifically says, is this really radical Malachi chapter 3. He says, test me now in this, try me now in this, or as it is in the old King James, prove me now in this, says the Lord of hosts. There are times and ways in which we can reverently put God to the test. And what I mean by reverently, just say, okay, Lord, you said it in your word. I call upon you now in the expectancy of faith that you will fulfill what you have promised. And in Malachi's day, the promise was basically that if we give unto God, God will give back to us, that we can't outgive God. Now, we're not speaking of this, and we're really not going to talk much about giving here, but just to set the phrase in Malachi chapter three, we're not talking about God uh, necessarily uh, making us rich if we give, but but there's other blessings and greater blessings that God can bestow upon us other than just financial return. But but there's no doubt God will bless those who give and God will never be a debtor to anybody. And basically what he's saying in Malachi is, test me now in this. There is a reverent way to test the Lord. Now, there is another way to test the Lord that dishonors him. It kind of thinks that it's going to trap God or expose his supposed unfaithfulness. And I say supposed unfaithfulness because God is never unfaithful, but sometimes people suppose him to be so. Or it chronically disbelieves God when he's given overwhelming reason and evidence to believe. We find this in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. Let me read you that verse. God says, or actually it's a portion of the verse. Uh, God said, you shall not tempt the Lord your God as you tempted him at Massa. 
You see, in Exodus chapter 17, when Israel was at this place called Massa, they tempted the Lord by doubting his love and concern for them. This was attempting or testing God regarding his love for Israel. And something that's not only high-handed against the Lord, I mean, after all, who are we to, to give a test to the Almighty? Okay, Lord, I'm going to test you now to see whether or not you really love me. No, no, that's not our place at all. But what Israel's problem also was, was that they were disregarding God's previous and constant demonstrations of love, his constant demonstrations of care for Israel, by demanding that God prove his love for them by giving them what they wanted right then at the moment. In other words, if I were to say this, okay, God, if you really love me, put $1,000 in my bank account by tomorrow. That kind of demand, that's testing God. But first of all, it's arrogantly telling God what to do. Secondly, it's, um, it's demanding that God play by my rules. And it's ignoring the many ways God shows me every day that he really does love me. And the ultimate way that God has shown me that he's loved me by giving his son and what Jesus did at the cross. See, anytime we deny God's love for us or demand that he do something for us, we are testing him as if he must answer to our standards and we're tempting him to judge us. So it's very important for us to say, um, first of all, tempt test, the same word can be used for both. But secondly, there is an ungodly way in which we can tempt or test God. But there's also a legitimate way in which we can, when we simply reverently, humbly come to God and say, Lord, fulfill what you have performed. But when we stand back and sort of, so to speak, fold our arms and demand that God jump through our hoops in order to prove himself, that is testing the Lord. That's tempting the Lord. And we should not do that. Now, that passage I quoted to you, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, that's the same passage of scripture that Jesus quoted back to Satan in the wilderness. When Satan tempted Jesus uh, to make the Father prove his love for the Son by spectacularly protecting Jesus if he would jump off the pinnacle of the temple. I don't remember that. It's in Matthew chapter four, Luke chapter four, for that matter. And basically, Satan tempted Jesus and say, well, you know, if you really are this favored son of God, then, then jump off and God will show his love for you by protecting you. And, and Jesus rightly said, no, that would be an ungodly and unrighteous test or tempting of the Lord. Jesus knew that it was wrong to demand this kind of proof from his father, since every day was proof of God the Father's love for the Son. So, Neely, that's the answer to that question. That's what it means to tempt or to test God and how we can do it and how we should never do it, how we should instead secure ourselves in not only what God is doing right now in our lives and in the recent past, but ultimately God has demonstrated his love, his care, and concern for us by giving us the ultimate in his Son, Jesus Christ. We dare not diminish that in any way whatsoever. All right. That's it for the question that uh, has come in on the, uh, I can't remember if that came out on email or social media. Uh, let me look now to our sidebar and we'll figure out. Um, Brian says, uh, hello, pastor. We'll be praying for the trip. Thank you, Brian. For those of you who have joined me late, I told everybody at the beginning 
that I will not be doing a live Q&A next week, next Thursday. That's the first Thursday of February, 2020, because I'm going to be in Cuba together with a team of pastors doing a pastor's conference. And actually, there's part of a couple conferences there for Cuban pastors. I appreciate your prayers for that trip. Thank you very much, Brian. Susan says, uh, hi, pastor. Can you give a general timeline of Israel as a nation? What happened after the deportation and after Jesus rose again? Well, Susan, I can only do it in the most general terms. Um, after the exile of the southern kingdom of Judah to Babylon, the Jewish people were allowed to return some 70 years later, uh, 70 years after God had uh, fulfilled the time of exile. Those Jews who chose to come back to the land could. Now, a very small percentage of them did. I can't remember the exact number. It's well under 10% of those Jews who could come back to the promised land did. So most of the Jewish people stayed in that ancient Middle East area. Today, it would be the land of Iraq and Iran and just kind of spread about. And they continued to spread about the Roman Empire too, where in Jesus's day, not only was there a strong population of Jewish people in Judea and in the region of Galilee, but there were also Jews spread across the whole Roman Empire. They were spread across the empire in impressive numbers. So uh, they spread across the Roman Empire. And then after the resurrection of Jesus, uh, some 40 years after, Jerusalem was destroyed and a Jewish rebellion was cruelly put down by the Romans. Now, you know, historians would argue whether or not that cruelty was necessary, but it was terrible. And, and the nation was devastated. Uh, thousands, perhaps even hundreds of thousands of Jews were slaughtered in the Roman conquest of Jerusalem and the wars that followed because there kept being occasional outbreaks of rebellion. And then the Jews just continued to, in those years, survive, number one, under God's protective hand, because the Jewish people have an ongoing place in the plan of God. And God is very serious about ensuring their survival because they have a place in his plan, and that plan hasn't been completely fulfilled yet. And so they would stay in the Middle Eastern area and begin to spread out through Europe, sadly, often being persecuted by the church. One of the uh, most shameful chapters in the history of Christianity were those many centuries when the worst enemies that the Jewish people had in Europe in particular were Christians. And it should not be so. It should never be so. But it was for many centuries. I, I thank the Lord that it's different today. And, and Christian people need to be very honoring towards Jewish people and push back against any hint of Jew hatred or anti-Semitism. And so they basically spread out across Europe, often being persecuted, and God blessed them and enabled them to stay together as a coherent uh, group ethnic group, if you want to use that, uh, through the centuries. So Susan, I don't know if that's exactly what you're looking for in your question, but that, that, that's what I can give you right now. Uh, Lupi says, hello, Pastor David, can you explain when the thousand year reign happens? Is it after the seven year tribulation? And when is it that Satan is sent to hell forever? Okay, Lupi. 
I'm happy to answer your question. Your questions are, when does a thousand year reign happen? Uh, is it after the seven year tribulation? And when is it that Satan is sent to hell forever? Okay, Lupa, I'm going to give you those answers from my perspective, because one thing that we have to be very upfront about in this is to acknowledge that there is a difference of opinion among Christians on these matters. There are some Christians who would say that this thousand year period that we call the millennium, that it's completely symbolic and we're in it right now. I don't agree with that perspective, but that is something that that some Christians say. There's other Christians who say, no, the thousand years is real and it's going to happen, but uh, it's it's our job to make it happen, so to speak. I mean, God working through us, of course, but, but God has given us the task of making it happen on this earth. Uh, I believe that that thousand years comes after the seven-year tribulation. And again, there's a lot of reasons why I believe that, and we could get into that in another time. But, but I believe that it happens after those seven years. And I believe that Jesus doesn't only reign for a thousand years. He shall reign forever and ever. His, his reign is eternal. And there is, a sense in, there is a sense in which Jesus is reigning right now. But in the way that the Bible specifically describes the reign of Jesus Christ over this, I don't believe that that's happened yet. I believe that it will happen. It'll happen after this seven-year period that the Bible describes. And Satan will be sent to hell forever after that thousand years. Uh, so that's kind of a quick summary of those things. Okay, Agnes. You know, let, let me just say, one of the things I love about these Thursday afternoons is to see so many familiar names that come up. Uh, those of you who kind of did the best you can, you make it a habit to tune in week by week. I love this. It's, it's a great thing. Okay, Agnes. Uh, hi, Pastor David. I heard a pastor say that God is spirit and he could have come as a woman and not a man if he wanted to. Do you think people would believe if God or more people would believe if God came as a woman? All right, Agnes. Uh, since I didn't hear what this pastor said specifically, uh, I'm going to answer that the best I can. But if I'm not exactly catching what that pastor said, you're just going to have to you know, forgive me that. And, and we'll talk about this. Um, I don't believe that God could have come as a woman. Now, what, what your pastor, or not necessarily your pastor, you said a pastor, you didn't say it was your pastor. What this pastor is getting at in a larger principle is true. God is not male or female. God is, is, is beyond that. As this pastor said, he's spirit. So God is not male or female. Um, and it's important we remember that about the nature of God. However, we also have to be very honest about the fact that when God represents himself in the scriptures, he represents himself again and again and again in the masculine, not in the feminine, not in the neutered or ungendered, but in the masculine. Now, there are a couple of exceptions to that that to tell you the truth, aren't very strong. For example, there's a place where God likens himself to a hen, which of course is a female chicken, to a hen that wants to gather the um, chicks under its wings. Uh, there are times when God compares his love for Israel and his people as the love that a mother has. So th there's a couple places, but let me tell you, um, 
for every one reference that there is to God, even in a vague sense, in some kind of female expression, there's probably a thousand expressions of God in the masculine, maybe more than that. So there are a couple very rare exceptions, but overwhelmingly, God presents himself as masculine. It's not because God is male. As we said before, he's spirit. No, it's because, well, look, I'd say this is my thought here. I want to be very careful. The scriptures do not specifically say this, but this is my thought here. I believe that God overwhelmingly presents himself as male because God has uh, so designed humanity that we more respond to male spiritual authority. I, I think I think that is inherent in the way that God represents himself to humanity. Uh, so th- that's how I would answer that question there, Agnes. I, I don't think more people would believe if God came as a woman. Actually, I think there would be less response to God's spiritual authority than there is. Okay, uh, Adolphi says, uh, Hi, Pastor David. Uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 30, teaching that God provoked death to some believers to protect them from condemnation due to the lack of reverence at the observance of the Lord's Supper. Yes, Adolphi, it seems that that's what it's speaking about. Let me turn over here in my paper Bible to the passage that you're speaking about. What we're talking about is 1 Corinthians chapter 11, where Paul is giving instructions to the Corinthian church regarding their conduct at the Lord's Supper. And he says this, starting at verse 27, Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Please notice that. God said in an unworthy manner. There are people who try to work up a sense of worthiness in themselves before they will take communion. That's not the idea. None of us are worthy, but we don't want to take it in an unworthy manner, in a way that disgraces the Lord and the price he paid for us, uh, that communion that the Lord's table speaks to us about. Going on now, verse 28. But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Verse 30. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. Now, I think you're dead on with that, Adolphi, that this was God's correcting discipline upon the Corinthian church. That there were some people among the Corinthians who were sick under God's discipline. Notice what it says there in verse 30. Some are weak and sick among you. God was trying to get their attention by allowing weakness or sickness in their life. And it seems that there were some, because Paul mentions there in verse 30, and many sleep. He's not talking about sleeping during the sermon. He's using a polite way to reference death. And so it it would seem that there were some Christians who were so... Um, disgracing the Lord at the Lord's table in Corinth, that God said, you know what? You're, you're, you're saved. You're my child, but let's bring you home. This isn't working out. Let's bring you home. Now, as soon as I say that, 
there's something in me that says, whoa, David, don't say that. Because there have been Christians deceived by the devil. Because you you know, don't you, the, the devil reads the Bible. And the devil knows how to quote the Bible. And there has been more than one Christian that has had this passage put in his face or her face by the devil. And the devil says to them, see, you're such a wretched sinner. God has no purpose for you. And there's, you may as well kill yourself. I do not want to give anybody the idea that that would ever be God's will for somebody. God's will for somebody to kill themselves. In particular, a believer, much less anybody. No, no, no. So we we, we can't ever let that thought continue that way. But the idea that God might, so to speak, call a believer home because they've Outlive their usefulness for his kingdom on this earth. That's conceivable. And that seems to be what's reflected there in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. It's something radicalism we don't think often about, but it's there in the text. Okay, uh, Susan says, uh, Hello, Pastor Guzik. Can you help me to daily live in God's grace? Thank you. Well, um, Susan, here's the great thing about the grace of God. I would say, the word I want you to really embrace and the thought I want you to embrace to receive and to live in the grace of God is this, humble, okay, for two reasons. Number one, an unforgettable verse for me in the Bible is this verse repeated three times in Proverbs, in James, and in First Peter, that God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. If we want to receive the grace of God, if we want to walk in the grace of God, we need to humble ourselves before the Lord and walk in a humble way before him. But then I would also say, Susan, humble in a secondary sense. Humble in this sense of simply saying that God brings his grace to us in humble ways. <laughs> Daily reading my Bible is a way that God brings his grace to me. A, a life of prayer and worship is how God will bring his grace with me, to me. Um, meeting together with God's people and hearing his preached word, going to church, so to speak. Th that's a way God will bring his grace. Now, sometimes we look for God to bring his grace to us in spectacular ways. And God may choose to do that, but we shouldn't seek for those spectacular ways. We should seek for God to meet us with his grace in the humble ways that he's given us. And I think he will. So humble yourself and seek God in the humble ways of his word, prayer, worship, getting together with God's people, putting yourself under the preaching of the word, coming to the Lord's table. These humble ways are how we walk in and receive the grace of God. All right. Thanks, Susan, for that question. Okay. Levy says, uh, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, adheres to, trusts, and relies on, has the Savior and will live even if he dies. John 11, 25. Well, amen, Levy. That's a fantastic verse. I love it, love it, love it. Thank you very much for that. Um, Daniel says, why did God tell the Israelites to put the cherubim in the temple given the commandment against idolatry? Of course, I realize that we don't have to understand everything, but I'm just curious. Okay, that's a great question. Okay, 
God told the Israelites to put the cherubim in the tabernacle first, and then in the uh, temple later on, which was built after the pattern of the tabernacle. So you're right, temple, tabernacle, whatever you want to say. Danny, I want to challenge you with something here. God definitely told them to make artistic designs of cherubim. What exactly that means, we don't know. How the Israelites would have known what a cherubim looked like, we don't know. Uh, believe me, a cherub was not a fat baby with wings, as is depicted in you know medieval art. No, that's not the idea at all. Cherubim are fearsome creatures that surround the throne of God. But this is what I want you to consider, Daniel. Those images or representations of the cherubim, no matter how they looked, were only visible from inside the holy place. And only priests went in there. And I think that the priests just understood, don't talk about it. Don't talk about what you see. So it wasn't as if the whole nation could go in and see these designs of cherubim. It was only the priests. And only the high priest once a year ever saw the Holy of Holies and ever saw the uh, Ark of the Covenant that had the cherubim's design on the mercy seat. So what I'm just trying to tell you is they were rarely seen, number one. And I think that those who did see them just said, hey, well, we're not going to talk about it. We don't want to give people a image that would lead to idolatry. Every week I send out a devotional. Uh, I've been doing this for more than 20 years. And just a couple of weeks ago, the devotional that I sent out, maybe it was just this last week, was about the bronze serpent of Moses that in the days of Hezekiah, Hezekiah destroyed it and called it Nehushtan. And this good thing that God had made, the bronze serpent in the wilderness, in the book of Numbers, look unto that and live and all through that, that, that was a wonderful, beautiful artifact from Israel's past, but they had made it into an object of idolatry. And God said, destroy it. Hezekiah destroyed it. Please God for him to do it. So we need to be very vigilant that even good things that God gives us, that we don't make them into idols. Okay. Um, going on here, Daniel, grateful princess says, you mean God made some Corinthians sick or was it God allowing the thief, the devil to steal from this health? Well, we, we don't know that, Grateful Princess. We don't know if this was God moving in an active sense, actually doing this correction, or whether it was God allowing it in a passive sense. But either actively or passively, God was doing it. We, we don't know which, uh, referring back to the question about the Corinthians. All right, let, let me take a few more questions here. Manashi says, how do you read the Bible? Can you share a Bible reading method or Bible plan? You know, uh, Manashi, I, how do I read the Bible? I need to give more attention to that question at another time. But let me just say this simply. Read the Bible thoughtfully. Now, listen, Bible reading plans are great. If you're trying to read the Bible in a year, that's a great thing. Read the Bible thoughtfully. And, and I'll tell you one thing that I've done several times in my Christian life that has been a breakthrough for me in my Bible reading. It's simply to do this. I would read through the Bible chapter by chapter, and I would write a one-sentence summary of every chapter in the Bible. And you know what that did? That made me read it thinking. I had to think about it and think about the whole chapter. And I would only allow myself, 
It has to be one sentence. I would write a one sentence summary of every chapter of the Bible. I strongly recommend people do that in their Bible reading at least once, twice, if not more in their Christian life. Get your Bible, get a notebook, use the same notebook for the whole thing. That notebook will become very precious to you. And just as you go through the Bible, a one sentence summary of every chapter of the Bible. That's a great way to do it. Uh, Lupe says, I don't know why I asked about the thousand year reign is after the seven year tribulation. I know that if God were reigning now, the world wouldn't be in the condition it's in. But I learned something. Well, yeah, Lupe, that's that's one of the reasons why I believe. Now, again, I want to make it clear. There is certainly a sense in which Jesus reigns right now, but not in the fullness of the reign that it's described uh, later on. Uh, Donald says, I love the iPhone Enduring Word app. Have you ever thought about an audio commentary in the app? Also, okay, Donald, thank you for mentioning that. I do want to remind everybody that we have a iPhone app. As I show you my iPhone, I use an old iPhone, but I like it. It's small. I like it. I anyway, uh, you can get the Enduring Word app for your iPhone or for your Android device it now features the Spanish commentary, the text commentary on there as well. If you want to use the Spanish commentary on the Enduring Word app, just go to the settings. Down in the bottom right corner, there's a little gear wheel that is commonly used for settings on apps and such. Click on the gear wheel, select Spanish as your language, and it'll enable you to use the Spanish app. You can also adjust the font size there in the app uh, with that. Now, what I want to tell you, though, is this, is that the next thing, Daniel, on or Donald, I'm sorry, I've been calling you Donald, uh, Daniel, Donald, the next thing that we're going to add to the app is access to the audio. So that's coming. That's on the way. Brian says, uh, when are you going to start up, dear pastor, preacher, uh, encouragement diva? Oh, <laughs> Brian, thank you for that question. And I think you might have emailed me that question. Um, I used to send out a pastor's, preacher's, and teacher's encouragement every other week. And I I fell off doing it. Maybe back in October, I fell off doing it. And Brian, I just want to say, I'm going to start doing it again. Uh, hopefully this coming Monday. I, I feel bad. I got this wonderful email list of pastors, preachers, Bible teachers who want to get this encouragement every couple of weeks. I fell off doing it. I'm, I'm going to get back on doing it, Brian. I, I just got to put myself to do it. Uh, so thank you. Thank you for the reminder. And uh, Lucia says, hello from Spain, Pastor. What to do when we backslide and sin apart from honestly ask forgiveness and stop what we're doing? What to do with the guilt and unworthiness feelings? Well, Lucia, I would just say this. Whenever in our Christian life we feel overwhelmed with guilt and unworthiness and, and we have genuinely confessed and repented before the Lord, then we just need to take refuge in our confidence in God's word. You know, there's certain scriptures that we just need to memorize. And my book, 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, is a memory verse for me. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And that's a promise that I've had to cling to at certain times. I feel guilty. I feel unworthy. But I say, Lord, you promised in your word that if we confess our sins, you're faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all our words. I believe it, Lord. Even if I don't feel it right now, I believe it. 
So what we do is we just keep telling ourselves the truth. And what is the truth? The truth is that God's forgiveness is there for us. He promises it in his word. If we will confess and receive the cleansing that Jesus has brought for us on the cross. Keep telling yourself the truth and the truth according to God's word. All right. Um, I'm going to leave it off here. Uh, Garange asks, could you explain to me what James means in James chapter one related to the context of James one? Um, maybe I'll be able to work on that uh, for a um, uh, question and answer next time. Uh, Ava says that I missed their question. Let me go back and take a look. I'm sorry. I don't see the question there, Avis. You'll have to submit it again. Um, yeah, I don't know why. Apparently, sometimes they fall through the cracks or something, but it's not in my chat queue here that I can see. So um, I just want to say blessings to you all in Jesus' name. Thank you uh, for your prayers for Enduring Word. Please continue to pray. Uh, God's blessing, the, uh, the Bible resources that we have on EnduringWord.com. Continue to go out and be a blessing to uh, people. And we just want to make it available to more and more people in more and more languages. So pray for that work. Thank you to those who support the work. That's a tremendous blessing. Very grateful for it. And uh, I hope to join us again the next time I'm able to on a Thursday for a live Q&A. And until then, whenever I can, I'll insert a recorded question and answer session. God bless you. Thank you for joining us today. You've been listening to a message by Pastor David Guzik for Enduring Word. For more information about our ministry and how to grow in your relationship with Jesus, please visit EnduringWord.com.